Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. In recent years, questions around the nature of truth and facts have re-entered public debate, often in discussions around journalistic bias and whether politically neutral reporting is possible or even desirable. Many pundits have tried to place blame for the increasingly slippery and fickle nature of truth in reporting on the ideas developed in much 20th century philosophy, particularly postmodern theory. However, my guest today, Santiago Zabala, argues that this is to mistake a diagnosis for the condition itself and makes the case in his recent book, Being at Large, Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, that much of the hermeneutic and postmodern philosophical traditions can help us navigate these times out of joint. Santiago Zabala is a philosopher and cultural critic and ICREA research professor of philosophy at the Pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona. He is author of many books, including, among others, Why Only Art Can Save Us, Aesthetics in the Absence of Emergency, from Columbia University Press in 2017. His opinion articles have appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, and Al Jazeera, among other international media outlets. So, Santiago Zabala, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me. So we always like to have uh, authors introduce themselves. So can you tell us a bit about who you are and what your main research tends to focus on? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I um, my philosophical investigations are, of course, um, very much uh, affine with continental philosophy and in particular with hermeneutics. Um, uh, and, well, my, my research, at least these past years, have, have dealt mostly with uh, political philosophy and how to, to understand uh, political philosophy through hermeneutics. Um, and, well, this, this, this brand new book, um, it's, really, it's really a way to, to sum up many of, the, um, many of the themes that I tried to develop these this past years, in particular the problem of being, of ontology, uh, the problem of interpretation, hermeneutics, and also, of course, the problem of, of emergency. Uh, all these three, uh, all these three concepts, I tried to uh, to understand through what today we call uh, the age of alternative facts. Um, all this, of course, take into into consideration that Heidegger is more or less the, the starting point for philosophical for all philosophical investigations. Although my reading of Heidegger, of course, it's it, it's very different from the ones that many other people do, as all classics have different interpreters. Uh, mine has a lot to do with the reading of Heidegger that the Italian philosopher did, Gianni Vattimo, um, and also in part also with what Richard Royce did with, with Heidegger. Wonderful. So in the book, or in the beginning of your book, you look at the now famous bit about alternative facts from Kellyanne Conway. You argue that the reason alternative facts hit such a strange cultural nerve is because it came at a time when various other questions related to institutions, authority, and truth were being raised. So as an introduction to your book, can you unpack how you understand the nature of truth in our current cultural moment? Right. This is, a, this is an excellent question, um, particularly the idea of cultural nerve. I think that sort of sums up the problem today. Um, well, the reason, the, the problem with truth today, I think it has a lot to do with, um, with this so-called return to order that I like to, that I like to discuss. Um, we have, uh, since 9-11, and I think also since this emergency we're now, uh, confronting, um, the, 
this pandemic, um, there has been uh, a big return to, to order. In other words, an intensification of, uh, of the framing powers that in some way um, limit our freedoms. So when people discuss or say that after 9-11, everything changed, I think it, it's quite the opposite. Uh, there has been an intensification of the structures of power that would that were already uh, at work before. In other words, after 9-11, we had more military intervention in the Middle East. We had more financial uh, constraints throughout. And of course, even from a technological point of view and surveillance, things got even worse. Uh, and this is, it seems that this is also what's going to happen now with this uh, emergency we're facing now. So the problem with truth now is that uh, in some way, all this disintensifications um, have in some way requested us or requested some of us to, in some way, to defend ourselves even more. And of course, I'm referring to, to defense in the sense of, of uh, returning to those closed societies that Popper uh, already criticized uh, almost a century ago. So the idea is that um, truth today has been has been framed even more. In other words, uh, this return to order that in some way, uh, Conway, it's it's only a symptom because her idea of uh, of requesting, of of trying to to tell us that there are alternative truths, in this case, she was referring to um, the statement about the attendance attendance numbers at Trump inauguration in 2017, she's really uh, imposing a truth. So, in some way, truth has been once has been, has, you know, the idea that we can in some way discuss what truth is has been dissolved, has been has been lost once again, uh, and this is because truth is being imposed now, uh, much more than before. So uh, this imposition, in some ways, what has been framing this cultural this cultural return to order, which I claim uh, it, it's very it's very clear and it's very um, it can be felt very well in, in, in a number of intellectuals, not only in, uh, in speculative realism or new ontology or new realism, as they call it, but also in, in also in actually also in some continental philosophy that has a lot to do with feminology. So the idea is that truth, uh, in some way, has been has been framed once again, and it's been imposed uh, in such a, in such a way that uh, everybody has its own truth, but in such a way that it, it's framed. There is no possibility of interpretation anymore. So if there is no possibility of interpretation anymore, everybody imposes its own. Of course, creating a higher conflict, and this conflict, it, I think it's evident in the way Trump, of course, treats the press, but not only Trump, of course. This return to order that I mentioned, has, it's also obvious in many right-wing populists that we'll, uh, I hope we'll discuss later. Wonderful kind of introduction then. So turning to Martin Heidegger's philosophy, which forms the conceptual backbone of much of your work, you turn to his understanding of metaphysics, which he understands as the history of different formations of being. And one of the most dominant elements of this history for him was metaphysics as parousia or presence. Can you explain what he meant by this? Okay, so, um, well, on on the one hand, Heidegger... um, he, uh, he his, his idea of metaphysics and the way his destruction of metaphysics here he operates in the time 
it's all about trying to explain how how being has has only been interpreted as something present and has something present it, right now. In other words, in the present, uh, this um, this is a problem uh, because in some way existence has been determined by time not only exclusively in presence but also ignoring other times. In other words, other presences there can be. Um, and this is what he called in Binan Time in paragraph 44, if I remember correctly, the ontological difference. Now, for those of us who are not philosophers, this basically what Heidegger is trying to tell us is that, well, um, philosophy and, of course, all the other uh, disciplines as well, have been in some way um, conditioned by this interpretation of being, of reality. Um, of course, this is, uh, from a philosophical point of view, this is the reading I, I, I try to make of Heidegger, it's something very poor. In other words, being your reality, it's, it's not simply what is here present. Uh, there's much more at stake. Uh, if we now think of, um, um, of the mouse we have here in our hand, perhaps, well, the mouse, it's, it's an object. We call it a mouse. It's, it's useful for a certain world to navigate on the internet, for example. Um, but that, that's not all, right? Uh, it is so many other things which are, which its meanings are implied in, uh, in the difference of its object. In other words, this mouse also has, it's, it can be something useful, it can be something beautiful, it can be something, um, it, it, its objectivity is not its only meaning in some way. And the idea that of Heidegger is that, well, we have to be very careful and we have to understand, okay, we have to, in some way, dismantle or deconstruct, as Derrida and so many others would do afterwards, uh, this idea that, well, that, that, that objects are they're just there and we don't really have to do anything else besides trying to describe them as accurately as we can. Uh, this, is, this is why um, it is very important to to understand Heidegger's notion or idea of metaphysics as some sort of limitation we have. Uh, And this limitation has also a lot to do with an indifference, an indifference we have towards what objects might mean or what objects can in some way uh, uh, tell us. And this, of course, is something that we feel now, I I hope some of us understand, for example, with with climate change. uh, in other words, we are framed within one understanding of how we can use the climate with the environment, when of course there are many others. But how come we don't we don't move to this? We don't overcome that. Well, we don't overcome that because of the way we think, and the way we think it's it's purely framed within metaphysics. So this is the way I like to understand what Heidegger, Heidegger's problem with the ontological difference. In other words, between how we interpret what being is and how what and whether and what is it important to know what being is in itself? This difference is more or less at the center of, uh, I think, of Heidegger's philosophy, but also of how we should um, think not only about Heidegger's philosophy or about philosophy, but also how we should actually philosophize in some way. Philosophy does not end with the ontological difference, in other words, by understanding this, this framing, but actually it starts from there. So we have to move beyond this. One of the ways Heidegger wants to shift our understanding of philosophy is to think of it as a conversation, hence his somewhat casualized entry into philosophy with the question, 
how's it going with being? What happens when we think of philosophy in conversational terms as opposed to a series of monologues? Okay, so, um, well, the question you, you um, well, how's it going with being? Um, it's a translation um, of, uh, of the new fundamental question of philosophy that Heidegger um, poses in Introduction to Metaphysics of 1936. And it's a very important question that he, because the, the, the regional or the classical fundamental question of philosophy is different, right? It's basically what is, uh, why is there nothing instead of something? Well, Heidegger transformed uh, in 1936 these questions and think that, well, perhaps we should change, you know, the main question of philosophy by how we state this with them saying, how is it going with being? And this is, I think, it's revolutionary. And actually, I, I work on this on another book of mine, The Remains of Being, uh, because um, if we agree that the fundamental question of philosophy should deal with the condition of being, in other words, that we agree that being or reality, we should in some way try to understand reality through being, through through this fun- vital concept to, uh, that basically distinguish philosophy from all the other uh, sciences. Um, why, why is this important? Well, it's important because it allows us um to have not to have to have a conversation with being rather than uh a dialogue uh, uh, this this difference between conversation and dialogue is 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 vital to understand to understand in particular what Heidegger would do later on in other words in the second Heidegger we have after the 1930s um it's vital because it allows philosophy not to be uh, frame within not simply one understanding of being, but also to to understand that um, that being is really a possibility we have to continue to philosophize. In other words, if being would be one objective or one description in itself, um, or one one description that we can sort of be all satisfied within, well, philosophy would be over there wouldn't be any more questions. And instead, um, what Heidegger is trying to tell us here is that, well, if we understand being as something that we have to, that we have to relate ourselves to, to being, and that being also has to relate to us, in other words, it, it speaks to us in some way, events, events in history in some way, they continue to speak to us, well, then be, philosophy becomes a conversation, a conversation that allows all those differences that I, that I mentioned before to emerge. So this is something also that Gadamer picked up from um, Gadamer was one of Heidegger's most important, uh, probably the most important disciple. And he insisted very much on the difference between a conversation or a dialogue, because in a dialogue, uh, we all know where it's going to end. Uh, a conversation is more loose. Um, in a way, it's at large, like I like to call being now. Uh, we don't know how it's going to end. Plato, for example, he had dialogue, right? He explained to the, to the slave what was outside the cave, and if he did not understand it, he would drag him out with violence right, to show him the truth. Well, that's more or less what happened uh, in Iraq, uh, trying to force everybody to, uh, to vote for democracy. Um, instead, the idea of, of, uh, of conversation is different. There's a sort of an exchange there that if you we are open enough to um, um, to 
to accept it or to understand differently in some way, then we might get both to somewhere else and also change all of us together. So the idea of a conversation is to is to allow being to continue to speak to us and of course to allow ourselves also to change through that same conversation. One of the most important elements of Heidegger's thought is his understanding of truth, which you show was a key point of contention between him and his philosophical mentor, Edmund Husserl. What was the conception of truth Heidegger was pushing against, and how did he want us to think of truth? Well, Heidegger, um, it's important to remember that he ended his collaboration with Husserl um, not only because he interpreted uh, uh, Phenomenology in a, in a very metaphysical way, but also because he attempted to dissolve philosophy in a series of regional ontologies, which, by the way, are at the origins of much uh, realism today. Um, let's, it's important to remember also that, well, Husserl thought of truth in terms of difference between mere intention and the matter itself, um, which also in some way presupposed that duplicity of being common to our metaphysical tradition. Um, so in some way, there is a difference here between the manner in which something in fact appears and the manner in which it is in itself. Um, now Heidegger, uh, contrasted this. He did not believe that this was, uh, this in some way was, was not taking the ontological difference seriously. Um, and so Heidegger in some way, he thought, he thought to turn everything around and, um, and, and in some way, try to explain that a statement, for example, this is a mouse in my hand, uh, is not the primary place of truth, but it's the other way around. In other words, the statement, um, it's, a, it's only a mode of appropriation of how, uh, how the mouse discloses itself. In other words, for Heidegger, truth is not something that we can in some way, even, even in some way assimilate to an opt. To, a, to an aesthetic vision. On the contrary, for Heidegger, truth is a disclosedness. Um, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's a, it's a form of, of lighting. This is, I think it's a good way to explain this. It's a form of allowing objects to reveal themselves on its own. In order to do this, um, of course, um, one has to be open for this. Uh, in order for truth not to be a simply simply a correspondence between what we think of it and what the object is in itself, we have to be open to the other possibilities, in other words, to what the former con metaphysical conceptual scheme, which is the one of Husserl and of all metaphysics, does not allow us to see. In other words, there is something missing there. Heidegger thinks that whatever is missing is, is in a way more important. And so the idea of, of, of interpreting truth as a disclosedness, as what opens up, uh, it's also a way of not only of overcoming metaphysics, but also of overcoming um, the indifference of metaphysics. Uh, Heidegger talks about metaphys metaphysics as being a very indifferent conceptual scheme because it does not take everything, it does not take this, those, those things that do not emerge immediately. So, the idea of Heidegger is that, well, truth is not simply what is objective in front of you. It is actually, even before that, okay, even before that, it is what discloses itself. This, of course, has a lot to do with how we, how we understand language. Uh, and even before that, how uh, language discloses itself 
throughout the different epochs of Queen. Turning to interpretation, you start bringing in a number of other thinkers to supplement your understanding of hermeneutics here. A couple key thinkers you bring into play are Gianni Vattimo and Richard Rorty, who emphasized hermeneutics' role as a form of or tool for political resistance. How did they see hermeneutics playing this role in our contemporary philosophical and political landscape? So, yeah, this is important because um, both Rorty and Vattimo, uh, in a way, are closer to Heidegger's hermeneutics than Gadamer. This is something very important because a lot of people, unfortunately, the history of hermeneutics um, has been very much conditioned by, by Gadamer, who, of course, who, by the way, was was big architect of the of what we understand of hermeneutics today. But at the same time, uh, Gadamer, of course, similar to Heidegger, was also very conservative, uh, and his and the problem is that he he presented in Truth and Methods in 1960 he presented a history and an understanding of hermeneutics that's a quite conservative um, key. The truth is that Gadamer had to, in some way, prepare hermeneutics for academia. In other words, create a, a, a discipline out of hermeneutics. Um, and so he, this is why the role of dialogue, the way he proposed dialogue, was also a little bit, um, a little bit conservative. Um, here, what's important about Rorty and Batimo is that, in some way, they they, they're closer to what Heidegger's sort of hermeneutic. For Heidegger, hermeneutic was a very, was a very practical matter. It's a very, um, it was something that had to do with uh, an activity, actually. Um, and that's why it had, for Heidegger, it, the origins of hermeneutics in, the, in Hermes, in the Greek god, of being in some way um, an anarchic figure, uh, it's, it's vital for them. This is why in the book I try to, in the second part, I try to, to, to open up a whole history to, of hermeneutics um, by not only talking about Wood and Batman, but also Freud, Nietzsche, uh, Augustine, and, uh, and Luther, because there is an anarchic vein that runs throughout hermeneutics. So this interpretation is not a, a specific enterprise about dialogue. Uh, interpretation is an act- it's an anarchic activity uh, which is in part also quite dangerous. There is there is always uh, a moment of danger in, in interpretation. Why? Well, uh, Rorty and Batimo have not only in some way explained it, but also have to put this in practice. In other words, if we think about who interprets, who are the ones who need to interpret? Well, uh, certainly not the ones that are satisfied with with the order, with whatever the order is today. Uh, the ones to interpret are the ones that are, are not happy at all with the order, with the, the way reality is. Uh, these are the ones who practice hermeneutics. So when Luther, for example, uh, translated the Bible and, uh, and translated for the first time the Bible, he was literally saying, well, everybody should be able to interpret uh, the Bible. It's not something that should be only for a certain number of people. So the idea here is that, well, Batimo and Rorty, they both use hermeneutics to go, the first one to go against the political consequences of globalization, and Rorty said to go against the rigidity of analytic philosophy. Uh, this is, Batimo, of course, he went all the way uh, to, um, for him, for him, uh, globalization represented a more advanced and established phase of Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, the total administrative organization system, 
which of course today has switched levels, which I don't know, we have not have imagined. Uh, and for Baltimore, the idea is that hermeneutics allows in some way to disrupt, to break, uh, and to create some sort of problem within the system. Uh, hermeneutics, it's, it, it's a problem as a discipline. Uh, it is constantly trying to, um, to, to suggest not only different interpretation, but also to, to stress that interpretation is itself what existence is. Uh, and this is why for Baltimore, interpretation in some way, um, it, it is the form to, it is it's the method we have basically to unmask in some way uh, the complicity of, of power and also in particular the role that now philosophy is starting to uh, have for a while now been in some way uh, submitting to science. Uh, so hermeneutics is a problem for, for institutions, for the establishment and um, and actually, uh, basically, for all society to a certain point, because it it's really a request of freedom to maintain the possibility of freedom open. So, while for Baltimore, hermeneutics is very useful to unmask a political this political um, this political problem we have today. For Rowling, said it was more uh, an issue of trying to 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 show how. Analytic philosophy back in the, in the 50s, in the 60s, and in the 70s, and I, I actually think also today, to, to some extent, um, has been too uh, not only too, linguist, too linguistic, but also too logical in some way. Uh, royalties, for royalty hermeneutics, has was in a, for royalty hermeneutics was also a problem because by endorsing hermeneutics, uh, he at the same time uh, he also lost his job. Uh, when he published Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature in 1979, um, Roti was was basically forced afterwards to uh, to move to a comparative literature department. Uh, his idea that hermeneutics was the future of, of philosophy and that analytic philosophy had run its course uh, was, of course, was, was a sort of a terrorist attack in uh, at the time, uh, a terrorist intellectual attack at the time in American academia. So for both of them, hermeneutics it's a way to, um, um, to to demonstrate that philosophy has to maintain uh, a conflictual um, conflictual um, a conflictual stance in some way. The hermeneutical stance for royalty and Batimo is a request to maintain freedom open, and therefore any political or philosophical. Uh, System that tries to frame it would be would be there <clears throat> uh, would be there would be necessary to in some way unmask. And I think this is what what hermeneutic meant for them. After this history of hermeneutics, you turn to the idea of emergency, which was developed in Heidegger's concept of notlosigkeit, which is a fairly difficult to translate term, but also a very important one, especially in his post being in time work. So can you give us a sense of what he meant by it and what you're trying to get at with it? Well, um, yes. Uh, well, the idea of, of NERT, which is, this, which is translated the idea of distress, flight, or emergency, um, it's, a, it's a concept that became central for Heidegger in the 1930s, um, which has a lot to do with the idea of the technological replacement of beings with beings. Uh, in other words, with the idea that um, in some way um, uh, 
calculation and technology uh, has, has reached a level of framing, of control, uh, to such a point that, uh, well, even emergencies have become framed in some way. Um, the idea is that for Heidegger, um, which Heidegger did not really discuss too much, this, this problem of emergency, this, is, this can be found, in, well, Richard Paul has a very book, book on the problem of Heidegger and the emergency. I try to, to move beyond that. But the idea of Heidegger is that, well, you know, the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency. Uh, and what he means by this is that, well, the greatest emergency we have is that being cannot emerge anymore, right? Being cannot uh, cannot emerge from from that technological um, technological system we have in some way created. Um, now, I think it's it's important to um, uh, hear the problem for for Heidegger. Here, the problem was very much related to technology. I tried to move. A little bit beyond this, and try to to understand that well. Now, the greatest emergencies are the ones which are missing. This does not mean that certain emergencies we have um, are not are not important. Uh, but we have to be able, in some way, to interpret those tensions in history that allow these emergencies to come out. So, when Heidegger explained that um, uh, the problem is that. It's not that it's not when something doesn't function, but rather when everything functions. This is it's a way of, of suppressing this idea of emergency. In other words, we have for Heidegger, we have created such a system of of, uh, of control and, and functioning where what it's, it's been lost and what has in some way been lost is thought. In other words, in other words, our practice of thinking. Uh, it is very difficult to think nowadays. It is much more easy to calculate in some way. So for Heidegger, um, Heidegger believes we have lost those tensions with, that in some way animate history and also animate uh, our ways to, um, to think. Uh, actually, in one, of, in, in one of the volumes of the Black Notebooks, Heidegger even mentioned how it has been uh, it, even unacceptable today to make mistakes. And, and this is actually something that is quite true. So what are we losing by creating this system of, uh, of total functioning? Well, again, we're losing a certain freedom, right? A certain freedom to, um, uh, a certain freedom to make mistakes. But often out of these mistakes, uh, there is also a creation, in particular if we think in the humanities, but not only in the humanities. So this is what I think Heidegger was, was going for. Um, and again, this is this is not for Heidegger. This is not an ontic issue. This is an ontological issue. Uh, and the problem of emergency for Heidegger is also a problem of of being not taking place anymore, not occurring anymore. So we have to find ways to allow being to to emerge again. Uh, and of course, um, the idea of emergency has a lot to do with the word to emerge too. Jumping off of this discussion, you turn to a number of other European thinkers, such as Carl Schmitt, Walter Benjamin, and Giorgio Agamben, who all had various ideas around the concept of emergency. So obviously there are going to be variations between them, but you see a kind of core set of ideas coming up in this section, particularly 
relating to the personal or existential and how it connects with the political. So can you unpack what's going on here regarding the importance of emergency? Yes. Um, well, I think the best way to understand the, the best way to understand the difference also between uh, between what I am trying to what I what I understand by emergency and what uh, these authors you mentioned do is it's uh, it's by thinking of um, the, so when um, state of exception or state of emergency become became central concept. Uh, right after 9/11 and uh, and the publication of Agamben's state uh, state of exception, um, Agamben uh, believes that well, the state of exception has become vital to understand and interpret global politics after uh, George Bush invasion of of Iraq. Um, so the declaration of a state of exception, according to Agamben has not only disclosed the performative expression of state power, but also foreclosed in some way any possibilities of meaningful democratic politics. Now, I think that a good way to understand this is to think about Trump today. I think instead that the state of exception, um, it's not enough today to understand politics. In other words, and, and Trump in some way, uh, and also, some other uh, right-wing populists they 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 point this out because um, while while for while for Bush, um, what was important was to try to exercise extra legal power to transform state of exception into routine political measures. Uh, for Trump, instead, the idea is to deny emergencies altogether. In other words, the absence of emergency that I um, that I that I try to explain it's it's perfectly evident in Trump. For Trump, there are no emergencies, or even worse, the emergencies that are there depend on what he says. So when Trump declares that uh, the environmental our environmental crisis is not an emergency, which he declared many times, and he also we've seen this even this past uh, months with uh, the coronavirus. Well, that that's where the greatest emergency turns out. And that, that's where the, the big problem is. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't many emergencies like refugee crisis, which is a clear emergency, or, um, or the rise of right-wing populism, which is also another, another emergency. Uh, but the greatest emergency is when we deny them. Uh, and so the, the example we have now of uh, downplaying the coronavirus, which, by the way, is something that Basically, only Trump and Bolsonaro have uh, still tried to do in some way, or are trying to, are trying to. They are incarnating this idea of the absence of emergency. Now, what is important here is to is to remember that um, uh, the uh, the idea here is that Heidegger's idea of the absence of emergency. In a way, it is feminologically comes before Agamben, Schmidt, and Benjamin's state of exception. In other words, uh, the idea that the sovereign decide on state of exception is really a consequence of metaphysics, of this total organization and framing of reality, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the idea here is that if we want to understand uh, our spiritual or, or political predicament today, we need to first understand why the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency. 
it is it is through the absence of emergency that we will understand whether what the sovereign will do or will not do. Uh, this is the way I think it's. Imp- I think it's the best way to uh, to move from one to the other, and uh, and to understand that um, the absence of emergency is really it's really it's really how we should understand today not only our greatest emergency but also what being has become. Uh, in other words, what we discussed at the beginning. So being does not cannot even emerge anymore. Cannot even emerge as an emergency anymore. So. Uh, this is particularly dangerous, and uh, I think it's something that should be uh, should be thought about by all philosophers. Developing off of the ideas here around the lack of emergency, you look at several instances of lack or resistance. One of the first ones you see is regarding populism, which you consider a sort of political emergency, albeit one with a large hostility towards it. Um, can you kind of unpack the dynamic you see going on here? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I uh, in the book what I what I try to explain that I try to I try to point out three uh, three greatest emergencies we have today, um, and well, one of them, of course, is this one of populism. And my 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 idea here is to first of all to distinguish populism between right wing and left wing populism. I I do not really uh, there could be a third a third a third version of populism today which is digital populism but in the book I discuss you know following Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto uh, um works there is a difference between right wing and left wing populism it's not the same populism is it's, it's a sort of uh, doesn't really mean anything if we do not it's like democracy it could be both. Um, could be could be lying more to the left or to the right. There is, there is a difference there, uh, and I think that what the greatest emergency today is is not the fact that we have right wing populism, but rather that we don't have any leftist populism. Um, this is, I think, the most important. Uh, this is, I think, the greatest emergency we have today. So, also, it's it's important. So, what is the difference between one and the other? Because unfortunately, um, the fact that we talk about populism. In a very broad and general way, without making this distinction, I think it's very unfair to those leftist populism populists who have not been able to secure power um, or voted uh, yeah, secure power in just this recent times, except for a few countries like Spain, where I live now. So, in some way, um, you know, right wing populism is based on the idea of uh, uh, fear. Of the foreigner, um, in also based on hatred and indifference, and all this, of course, you can find this in right-wing populists, as Trump and Bolsonaro, who basically work following this uh, this scheme. Left-wing populism itself is different. It's hope for a better future. Uh, it's based on uh, equality and uh, and justice for all. And uh, instead of excluding categories of people. Uh, it focuses on sectors of the establishment at the service of neoliberalism, um, of the neoliberal global corporation. So the idea of leftist populism, uh, one should question how come there aren't any leftist populists. I think that, that's one of the reasons, one of the greatest emergencies we have today. And, uh, and the fact that we do not distinguish between one and the other 
it's also another big problem we have. But 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 the issue here is how come uh, leftist populism have not been able to emerge okay, in this situation? Uh, of course, this has a lot to do with that with the return to order and return to reality that I mentioned uh, that I mentioned before. You look at the currently developing issue of climate change as operating as a sort of emergency for us, albeit one that is often either hidden from view or depicted in the form of individual disconnected crises, disabling their cap- capacity to function as proper emergencies. Can you explain what you see going on and how we often think about climate change here? Yes. Uh, well, climate change, of course, it's my uh, it's my my favorite example uh, to discuss the absence of emergency because um, here we are in the midst of a pandemic that has been, we've been warned many, many times uh, uh, for years and also even last year, um, the WHO director warned us that we we should be prepared for such an emergency. But again, the greatest emergency is the one that are absent, the one that we do not take into consideration at all. So um, the idea here is that um, a, a crisis like the coronavirus we're facing now, um, uh, it simply suggests that in some way we this is an emergency that until very recently was absent. Uh, now it has turned into an emergency. It has turned. It has. It has has become an emergency in some way. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, Problem here is that we, you know, this is not the only emergency we have. Uh, in the book, I talk about biodiversity, which is, which is another, uh, which is actually probably at the origin of this, um, this pandemic we have today. And uh, if you know, bio, biodiversity loss is one of the greatest emergencies we've been, we have not been confronting this past year, and now the coronavirus is a good example of, it's a good consequences of that. Um, the problem with I think that we should remember here is that um, you know, climate change, it's an emergency, it's an, ab- it's an absent emergency, and will probably continue to be an absent emergency after this uh, pandemic, uh, after we overcome this pandemic, and I hope it will be very soon. But I wonder whether we are, we are, we are able to, if we haven't been able to, to tackle the environmental emergency, which... By the way, uh, you know there are many more viruses waiting for us uh, under the um, under on the glaciers, and uh, and so the problem with the environment is that uh, here here the ontological difference of Heidegger I think would work very well to understand because the ontological difference would allow us to see those possibilities, those differences that we not we don't want to imagine in some way, Uh, not even. Taken into consideration, I think the, the environment is very important here because it, it's it, it's a philosophical issue that in some way concerns the philosopher, uh, but but it concerns also its relation to being. Uh, its relation to being, uh, it, it's also natural in some way. That's why Heidegger talks a lot about uh, the uprooting from the earth. We have to in some way return to that earth uh, and return into that earth means to think about the environment. Um, well, I tried to explain this, but I, anyway, let, let's move on. 
Yeah, so finally, you turn to the example of whistleblowers as figures trying to create an emergency for us, bringing to light certain events that have been covered up, often at great risk to themselves, as in the case of figures like Julian Assange, Ed Snowden, or Chelsea Manning. Or one could also think of some of the journalists who lost their lives in the wake of the publication of the Panama Papers. So how do whistleblowers function in terms of a hermeneutic emergency here? Okay, well, um, it's a very good question because the um, problem with whistleblowers here and it's that um, you know they they are they have shown us that the value or even the weight of truth um, they have shown us that even if we show you the truth, all the documents, we show you everything nothing would change. So they sh- they're in some way, the way they reveal truth and how truth has been revealed, it's a very good indication that, well, truth does not, does not, does not work, uh, does not stand up um, for itself alone. Uh, truth needs, just like, in other words, um, neither of this, Whistleblowers, and of course there are many more besides the one that I that I mentioned. Uh, you're right to 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 refer to the ones of the Panama Papers too. Uh, they their work only works only functions if a great a big paper allows them to to tell the news. In other words, they are the incarnation of the homonical idea that well, truth alone does not work. You need major newspapers. You need um, uh, government agencies, you need academics, we need a huge amount of uh, of people to, to help us, to help facts in some way. Ha- facts alone don't work. Uh, this is why uh, uh, the truth they revealed would not have emerged if it wouldn't have been for those, I think it's the Guardian, New York Times, and the other papers that allow them to, to publish those, those news. So uh, in some way, they are telling us that they are showing us how frame we are. Uh, the fact that so few, almost, I don't think any government has been, uh, very few government have, have had serious, serious trouble after some of this revelation. It's an indication that of how framed the, the, um, the system is. Framed to the point of, uh, of not making a very big difference if we know precisely everything, the actual truth. Um, and so I think that um, uh, in some way, uh, hermeneutics, they are, they are telling us in some, how important it is that we become autonomous interpreters, how important it is that we in some way manage to, uh, to strive for interpretation uh, because, because facts alone do not work. So when... Uh, we are told we are told that there are alternative facts out there. Um, well, we have to, you know, we have to make sure that we we listen carefully to who who is telling this to us and who else can help us understand this further. Uh, this is why I think that one of the problems of social media has been of uh, of becoming in some way some sort of uh, some sort of um, communication um, uh, outlet. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think whistleblowers, of course, are, are vital. They are also a consequence of this return to order that I mentioned before. 
uh, and they show how strong this return to order is because very little change will occur after um, after truth is even revealed to us. Yeah, so that brings us to the end of the book. Uh, so to wrap things up as a final uh, sign-off, your book has hermeneutics as its conceptual backbone, and it's very much a part of your academic life, but you clearly see it as having effects and implications that go be- well beyond the confines of the academy. Instead, you see it as a part of our everyday lives as well as our politics. In closing, how do you see the relationship between hermeneutics and politics today? And how would you encourage people to uh, engage more hermeneutically in their everyday political lives? How to engage more hermeneutically in the political life. That's vital, right? Uh, And it's vital that we manage in some way to, uh, of course, doing, being more hermeneutically active does not necessarily only mean having your own interpretation. It means uh, understanding how important it is to help facts, like I said before, uh, but also to understand that um, it's, it's much more uh, than, than a simple academic discipline, like you said. Uh, it really involves us, in a, in a, in, it involves us existentially in some way. Um, this is why I think that, you know, given how framed we are today or uh, to the level of framing that politics, but also the academia, of course, but in general, the, the level of civilians we have reached today, what really makes us human beings today, or distinguishes us among each other also from, from uh, as human beings, is really interpretation. It is really that anarchic, um, uh, that anarchic effort we make to, to show that difference that is always missing there. Uh, this is why I think it it is very important to um, to point out that uh, in, in some way how how are how can we be this is I want to sort of finish off by pointing out that how can we be how can we see the absence of emergency the greatest emergency which is the absent one how what what do we need there in order to see it right um, and I think that it's very important here to to think of this formula that we shouldn't be really rescued from emergencies. But rather, we should be rescued into emergencies. In other words, uh, being being closer to emergencies, uh, it, it's basically what is going to save us. But in order to to get close to this to this danger, because of course, uh, thinking about an absent emergency like refugee crisis or or, or the environment uh, or even the environment, uh, it comes with it some danger. Uh, activists have. Uh, it's, this is not a pacific, um, peaceful, a peaceful engagement. It takes it takes some courage to go to to talk about certain emergencies, and I think that hermeneutics, given its anarchic vein of uh, of trying in some way also always to um, to confront um, technology, but also in general whatever framing powers uh, to limit our freedom, I think it is the way to um, it is it is what can help us in some way to become. Uh, autonomous interpreters. In other words, interpreters who are not satisfied with the world order or reality or whatever whatever the framing is in for each one of us, and has to some has to stand up to that. Uh, I think, and one of the ways to do this is through hermeneutics, because interpretation gives you 
that uh, the possibility of emancipation from an objectivity, from a functionality, from a framing that probably has not been chosen by you. In other words, what uh, the fact that most of our um, most of our communication passes through only Google, which is a private company, uh, should make us think how autonomous we actually are. Well, Homnetic can help us maintain that very critical stance, very anarchic stance, uh, which is really only there to keep the idea of being open, to keep the possibility of being emerging when it is necessary. And it is necessary every time it is absent. So Homnetic philosophy It's a way to maintain open the possibility of freedom, which includes difference and includes also, of course, our own existence. Yeah, that's a wonderful kind of way to close. So as a final question, what are you working on now? Uh, right now, I'm preparing a, a new book on uh, the problem of disruption. Um, disruption, uh, as everybody knows, it's, it's a concept uh, mostly used in uh, business um, in um, business management by Christensen, this, um, uh, this professor of Harvard that recently passed away. And I am trying to reconstruct the history of disruption uh, through um, this French philosopher, Bernard Stiegler, and also through Heidegger. Uh, and it has really a lot to do with, um, with the idea of... Um, being rescued into the emergency, because I think that, well, the fact that we um, we receive so many, I think that in some way, I think the absence of emergency can be also called disruption, um, which is something that it's not only a, a rupture, but it's also, um, we have to find, I have to, in some way, I'm thinking of hermeneutics as a possibility. You mentioned conversation before, so hermeneutics is a, it's a way of continuing the conversation against a number of disruption, technological, but not only, that unfortunately we have to, um, we have to, uh, we have to confront now. That sounds uh, like an absolutely fascinating book. I really look forward to that now. So oh, uh, Santiago Zabala, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. I, I, I really appreciate uh, this conversation.